You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Shouldn't you be at work? It's a lovely chip! Oh, it's a brilliant goal! From Lord Pohino! Still it's not away. Southgate shot. Milosevic scores! Now you know him better than anybody probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin, Will He Score? Episode 2, Series 9. I'm Chris Gold. Joining me as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And this man is to Quickly Kevin what Dennis Nedry was to Jurassic Park. I can't get Quickly Kevin back online without Michael Mudd. Hello, it's back-to-back Jurassic Park references. Is that allowed? I just enjoyed the last one. I thought we could go again. Yeah, it's a good film. Uh, 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 you didn't say the magic word. Main issue with Jurassic Park. Uh, do, you want, do you want to hear it? Yeah. yeah. Why have they got a glass of water in a car very good point there what do you mean very good point what do you mean why have they got a glass of water no one drinks from a tumbler of water on a yeah. dashboard that is completely absurd yeah of a four by four in a saf- off-road yeah, safari park uh, yeah an off-road safari park <laughs> have they poured it from a bottle making it le- less practical the car's creeping around. It's not doing 50 mile an hour around the park. Chris, tell me the last time you poured yourself a glass of water in a car. <laughs> yeah, you've got me there. You've got me there. The the uh, the password, the lock screen on my laptop is actually Dennis uh, going, uh, uh, uh. Can I tell you what I think that my biggest problem with Jurassic Park? Yeah. You know when they go to see the T-Rex? It's at ground level. They look to the left and there's like a goat there. And, and you yeah. can see the ground. About 20 minutes later in the film, there's suddenly a massive drop off that. When the T-Rex pushes the car over the edge, it's a huge drop. So at the start of the film, it's level. And then about 20 minutes in, there's suddenly a huge drop off in that T-Rex pen, which doesn't make sense. There we go, mate. I don't feel like we should ponder on this any further. (laughs) (laughs) 90s clock news? Yeah. Headquarters of ITN News at 10 with Chris Scull. Stunning Shilton penalty technique interview comes to light. Oh, wow. And Kevin Keegan lands tasty gig. 
Oh, yes, please. It's a vintage week. It's so, a vintage week. A big thank you to Brian Davis Sports on Twitter. He's found uh, a double-page spread from a football magazine, which I presume is mid-80s. And Peter Shilton reveals that in the mid-80s, he changed his penalty te- technique to the one we know and love, where he just oh, waits wow. to see what happens. And you're not going to believe this. Something happened in the mid-80s that cemented in his mind that this was a better penalty-saving technique. Was it the Falklands? <laughs> <laughs> the Belgrano. No. <laughs> the Belgrano. The Belgrano was was, face, was going away, wasn't it, when the shot was taken? And that's when Peter Shilton turned his back. He decided to face away from the shot being taken. Yeah. If it had just stayed where it was, it wouldn't have gone down. Yeah. <laughs> um, here we go. I'm going to read this now. Peter Shilton's crucial save from West Germany's Andreas Bremer in Mexico helps justify the England keeper's decision to have an about turn in his thinking when facing penalties. So, I found the game this happened in. 12th of June, 1985, at a thing called the City Tournament in the Azteca Stadium in Mexico City in front of 10,000 people. England beat West Germany 3 Can I just stop you there? That is a pitiful attendance for England I know, versus the, the, Germany in the Azteca Stadium, isn't it? And we'll put the picture up because you can see the Azteca Stadium in the background and uh, lightly attended. Well, I'll note that down for our Instagram. Go on to our Instagram. We will we will be endeavouring this series to put, put up all the images that we discuss on our Instagram, so do follow. Um, Peter Shilton explains, Like most go- goalkeepers, I used to make my mind up which way the kick was going to go and try to react accordingly. But now I'm concentrating on getting into the kind of rocking position that makes it easier to react when you know in which direction the ball is going. In I my, bro- can I just say, in my mind, the rocking position is like the kind of status quo dance. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give himself RSI. Um, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't that part, that would be quite a good... If Shilton was doing the status quo dance as Andrews Bramer approached, I don't think that would be a bad idea. I think yeah. if he was doing it, we'd be in the final of World Cup Italia 90. Yeah. <laughs> um, he says this, I broke my new rule when we played Italy in the first match of the Mexican tour. Ray Wilkins suggested I go left, but it ended up going right. There is a lot of luck involved in the saving penalties, but I'm one for eliminating as much luck and risk as possible, and I hope I've come up with an answer. Let's face it, although there is more pressure on a penalty taken than a goalkeeper, it's still a bonus when you manage to stop one. I just hope that I can pick up a few more bonuses next season. So, he saved Andreas Bremer's penalty by just following the ball, right? Yes. In many ways, I mean, Andreas Bremer, who, as you're aware, I'm a huge fan of, um... That miss was actually one of the most important, even though he scored the winner in the World Cup final, that was perhaps as important to Germany winning the World Cup because by missing that penalty, he actually won them the shootout four yes. years later. Yes. <laughs> but but Shilton's record up to that was appalling. And also his penalty record after that was appalling. <laughs> that was just a freak anomaly yeah, of a really save. Was. It made zero difference to his record. He saved, I think one in his entire career outside of that it made <laughs> that's absolutely no difference but do you know what i've just sent you the picture it's really interesting because i think it demonstrates when this technique is good which appears to be when it's hit within an arm's length of the goalkeeper yeah. in a central position like yes if it's yeah. a poor penalty you've got a chance for shilton you're in a world cup semi-final it's not going to be that poor well you've sent us the link chris as well 
And it shows quite how bad Shilton's reputation already is <laughs> in that the headline in this magazine is who said he can't save penalties. Wow. So even in 1985, when this penalty was taken, Shilton's reputation was that he was shit at saving penalties. <laughs> no Five wonder years. he's got a chip on his shoulder about it. When he's getting trolled by Shoot magazine for saving a penalty. <laughs> yeah. So, so that penalty, you can see... Uh, like Josh said, we'll put it on Instagram. But you can see Shilton is at full stretch there. Like he's only just saving it. And I'd say that ball is nowhere near the corner of the goal. Yeah, no. So yeah. I think anyone who's got vaguely decent technique that could put it, I'd say somewhere between five to ten inches between the post and the middle of the goal is going to score. He's, he can't get to it physically. He doesn't have the scale and the size to get to it. I I totally agree. Can I just? Change it from Shilton to the penalty taker, Andreas Bremer, who I think is one of the greatest, ever, my favourite ever players. Uh, as of recently, when I've been, I've kind of become obsessed with him. Did you know he is one of the only players who's completely ambidextrous? So he plays with both feet, right? And he scores, he scored penalties in the World Cup with different feet. What? In the same World Cup. In, uh, I think he might have scored one in 86 and one in 1990, or I can't remember exactly when they were, but he scored World Cup penalties, one with his left foot and one with his right foot. He's the Ronnie I mean, O'Sullivan of penalties. He's the Ronnie O'Sullivan of penalty takers. <laughs> That's Isn't that mad? Yeah. yeah. That he doesn't have a favoured penalty taking foot. I mean, right in if there's any other players who are like that. Do you think he could run up in a completely straight line? Yeah, I wonder. <laughs> and, and you'd have no idea. That's a great question. Or like run up as if he was going to hit it with his right and then hit it with the outside of his left. I don't know yeah. why, how that would help in any way. <laughs> that is, that's so mad that Shilton, his one achievement in penalty saving was actually the biggest mistake he ever made. I know. I know. Like it just came at the wrong time. It's Andres Bremer, if he scores that, Shilton has to review his penalty technique. And it's so galling that it was against the very team that would then go on to, to dismantle him <laughs> in a penalty shootout. Also, like I, I think it sh- reveals a lot about the personality of Peter Shilton that he thought he'd invented a new penalty-saving t- technique that never that worked once yeah. in the mid-'80s. Yeah. When every other goalkeeper is like, do your research, guess which way they're going to go, give yourself the best chance. He's going, I'll see what happens. It's, it's genuinely... Oh. Oh. Very annoying. We've talked a lot about it, so I don't think we've got time. Because this is this week, uh, our interview, which, you know, arguably, Skull, I think you thought maybe our best interview ever. It could be our best ever. So yeah. we haven't got as much time for a 90 o'clock news okay. and um, the electronic post bag. And that's not just us failing to tell you about Steve Froggart's wife. This is genuine. <laughs> the Kevin Keegan news will come next week. It will come next week. Shall we have the electronic post bag? I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Post Bag. You've got mail. Do you know what we'll start with? On the subject of the England national team, do you remember we were discussing how bad the Euro 92 squad was? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So someone, uh, Daniel Oswin, has written in, and he's made some potential changes to the Euro 92 squad that were available for Graham Taylor. Oh, Oh, great. Yes, love this. So... I'm going to take you through the Euro 92 squad and you can tell me whether you would accept his changes. 
can we can we throw in some suggested changes based on who we think might have been available? And yes. See, see how many of them line up. Yes, go on. Do you want to throw in some suggested changes well, now? Give us give us a squad first, and then we'll sort of do a position. Okay, so by the position. original Graham Taylor squad was Chris Woods, Keith Curl, Stuart Pierce, Martin Keown, Des Walker, Mark Wright, David Platt, Trevor Stephen, Nigel Clough, Gary Lineker, Andy Sinton, Carlton Palmer, uh, Nigel Martin, Tony Dorigo, Neil Webb, Paul Merson, Alan Smith, Tony Daly, David Batty, Alan Shearer. I mean, it's not it's not awful actually. It's not, it's not that bad. No, but do you want to hear some changes that could be made? Yes. Adams? Do we have Adams? Uh, Adams isn't doesn't seem to have been added, so I don't know whether he was yeah. injured or whether he was possibly in prison. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm so, going to say Gary Pallister would have yes. been a very good choice. He said PFA Player of the Year, Gary Pallister, replaces Keith Curl. Yeah. And then he's replaced Nigel Clough with... This is astonishing that he didn't make the cut. Division one top goal scorer Ian Wright, aged twenty-seven. How has he not oh, made? Wow. Yeah. Andy Sinton replaced with PFA Young Player of the Year runner-up Steve McManaman or Lee Sharp, perhaps. Well, Lee Sharp's also an option. And how about replacing Neil Webb with Paul Ince as well? Uh, yeah, that's a much better side. He still left Tony Daly in the squad, which I find absolutely... <laughs> There's got to have been a better right midfielder than Tony Daly kicking around. Was Chris Waddle available at this point? There we go. No, if, you, if you want to improve uh, that squad further, um, we will accept your suggestions. Maybe we should slowly, over the series, build up the Euro 92 squad until it's actually England's best ever squad. <laughs> Bloody hell, Stuart Pearce was 30 at Euro 92. 30? Yeah, so he was 34 at Euro 96. Bloody hell. He was playing down the Hammers in 2001. He was what? He was, he was down the Hammers. Oh, playing down the Hammers. Oh, sorry, I thought you said the Amazon. I, was like... <laughs> I thought you did as well. You went, that's the most West Ham you've ever been on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, that was unbelievable. You, you went proper chicken run there. <laughs> God. <laughs> Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Okay, so uh, Phil Thompson today. Quickly before that, I would just say um, that uh, we are now back up and running basically until December, aren't we? And that doesn't just mean that uh, we have episodes every week on a Monday. That means for Patreon members, you will be getting the episodes on Friday and they will be 15 minutes longer. So uh, if you want that, sign up to Patreon. Also for XJ8 members on Patreon, we have recently had the episodes released of Nick Hancock's Football Nightmares, our review of the most iconic video of the 90s, and Chris Skull taking us through his favourite clips in another episode in which finally we discuss Kevin Keegan on superstars and as someone who recently uh two days ago fell over jogging and uh grazed my knee i've thought a lot about that kevin keegan clip in the last 48 <laughs> hours uh this month the reason we did those two last month is ivo graham was away so this month there will also be two episodes of the steve barnes trilogy so do listen to that one final plug um do buy my book watching neighbors twice a day because it's all about the 90s it's available from September the 16th, but order it now because it's full of the kind of references that you love if you listen to this podcast. Guys, have you got anything else you want to promote quickly before Phil Thompson? Then let's get on with Phil Thompson. (laughs) Um, This man, well, we didn't quite kind of realise until we started researching him that he's probably the most decorated footballer that we've ever 
interviewed, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. He's done it all. He's won it all. And he was there throughout some of the most iconic moments of the 90s. He was there in the 90s. He was there in the 70s. He was there in the 80s. He was there in the 2000s. But really, there was only one decade we actually cared about. One of the most charming, charismatic, and do you know what? Passionate and just delighted with their career that we've ever dealt with in terms of people. It was an honour to interview Phil Thompson. Our guest today is a legend for club and country. In an astonishing playing career, he won seven league titles, three European Cups, two UEFA Cups, a European Super Cup and six charity shields. He captained the club he supported as a boy, Liverpool, and captained England six times, winning 42 caps before returning to Liverpool after he'd finished playing first in Kenny Dalglish's managerial team and then as assistant to Gerard Houllier in the late 90s, winning lots more trophies in the process. Please welcome to Quickly Kevin, Phil Thompson. Where are all the trophies, Phil? Where are all the medals? Do you know what? It's it's very, very hard to discuss that on this, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> They're in a safe oh, where nobody knows steady, the... Uh... St- steady, lad, steady. <laughs> but do you... All right, let, let, I'll rephrase that. Do you ever look at them and kind of... Do, do you ever think back to that time a lot? Are you do a nostalgic you know person? I do, I, I do look at them, but... Do you know something? Kenny Daglish had his um, stolen and I put them in a safety deposit box and I put them in a bank. Yeah. And I'm, I must, I've never seen them for about 15 years, something like that. Yeah. And it was wrong. And I, I thought all my close friends, even my sons, who'd <laughs> hardly ever seen them. And yeah. as you just said, there's such a array and... You, know, you missed out the UEFA, two UEFA Cup medals and an FA Cup winners medal, but I'll forgive you. <laughs> um, we thought the charity shields were more important. Charity shields, I know, yeah. Do you know what? In our medal hall back in, in the day, us guys at Liverpool never ever counted charity shields. And now it seems to be the big thing yeah. is everybody puts that on as a one of the major titles. <laughs> Because it's all gone, isn't it, from winning medals. Now it's titles. Jose Mourinho, it's titles what you win. And it's it's not just a title when you win the league, which you would think that's it. It's a title when you win the FA Cup. It's a title when you win. So it's gone like that. And so now everybody adds charity shields. And, you know, we had had six of them. Um, And some of them got shared. It was only ever a warm-up game to... Our yeah. guys, when the season started, it wasn't sort of vastly important. But if people want to count them, then so be it. Is is it true about in the Liverpool dressing room, they'd like hand out the medals in a plastic bag, like they wouldn't <laughs> the, all that kind of mythology about how no, the medals were treated. It's wonderful, isn't it? And it's a great story because we won the. I don't know whether um, Sir Alex Ferguson did the same at Man United, but. We had it did happen like that with Ronnie Moran because we won it so often. He would have a big box like that, and the medals would be all in the box. And he'd come round and he'd look at you and he'd go, "Did you play enough times, or did you, did you think that you merited it?" And you're all like that. You were thinking, and he goes, "Ah, I know you did. There you go. There's your medal." Like, and he was just in it in a cardboard box. It was like something. Now it'd have Amazon all around the side of it. So, but it was, 
it was great. So that, that was Ronnie's little way of starting the season and handing the medal. Because we, we didn't receive the medals at the end of the season when we get the trophy. It wasn't a big trophy presentation back then, sadly. Yeah. Um, and it was just, you were giving them out. But it, it was still meant so much to us by the yeah. time you had that. I, I got my first one at the age of 18, um, 1972-73, so which was which was absolutely wonderful. Played, it was 14 games to actually play, and I played the 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 just then the amount that you had. Now I think it's like five. Yeah. Like, that you've got to play to get a medal. Um, but then it was 14, so it was quite. That's a lot so of I didn't games, even, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, not half, and I didn't realize it at the time of. That that was my fourteenth game. I just thought like I was I played enough games to get a medal. Yeah. And 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 I did do Shanks on the last game, picked me ahead of Brian Hall. So I'm thanks thankfully that he did that, because that was my fourteenth game against Leicester, oh, last wow. game of the season, which was nil nil at Anfield. Do you think he knew that? Do you think he was doing that because he wanted you to get a medal? Or did he do you not know care what? about I stuff don't, like that? Do you know what's a fit? I've never really thought of it that way. After all these years, you've just triggered something <laughs> in my mind. Really nice. <laughs> of, all the, of all the questions people have asked me, maybe he did. But yeah, maybe he did that. Maybe he knew. Certainly Brian all didn't, because Brian was absolutely gutted. <laughs> not to play. Um, Phil, if you got a call to say the bank's on fire, you can only save one medal. What are you running in and saving? Do you know what? Do you know what my prized possessions, if, if I look at them all, look at them all, what is so special is the FA Cup winners' really? medal. Oh. It's in a lovely red box, a little bit worn around the sides now. But as you open it up, it's got like old players in the middle of it, two either side of this oh, no. um, lovely sort of. It's like a statue or something, and then it's got the little thing where you can link the ribbon rounds on the top of it. Yeah. But it is so beautiful, <laughs> honestly, and and I mean that's beautiful yeah. because my. The European ones that I've won are like gold medals, just round discs inside. A, some, yeah. some of them are just in like a plastic um, box uh, and they all look the same. That's yeah. what I'm saying about the FA Cup just looks that little bit different. Yeah. Like some of my, my league ones that I got to start off with, it's like something that you get like Sunday league when you're about 10 or 11. <laughs> it's like on a... It's Made like a little on trophy a, shop. Honestly, it's like a wooden back with like sort of, uh, it's a plaque, put yeah. it that way. And then oh, they wow. changed it. So I've got about three or four of the wooden plaques with a medal. But the medal then, they started with a nice, lovely looking medal, which which was a lot better. But I looked at it and I thought, you in the right mind decided on giving a plaque. <laughs> <laughs> Did so, you, um, you started out as a fan on the cop in the... So- uh, which, what was that like being on the cop in the 60s? You know, it was absolutely incredible. It was so enthralling, but it wasn't the safest place in the world. <laughs> Honestly, when, when you think of it, it held at its highest about 28,000. When hell. I used to go, there was 24,000 on the cop. Oh and it, it wasn't until you see it when it's empty with all these crush barriers and you wonder when you're actually in there because you swayed, you went forward, you went back. Really? It was, so it was properly like you're, 
And could you, were you, how much are you involved in watching the game? And can you say, I mean, obviously you're a tall bloke, you know, but like. Being in there, I don't know whether you guys had ever sort of been in such a masses, throngs of people. They were but, standing at Plymouth Argyle when I first went, but it wasn't the same. Was I don't know, 24,000. <laughs> but what it, it was, it was just incredible. You were just like sort of, I used to get in there at about half past 12. And no. my brother had been working as a motor mechanic. And yeah. he used to come about, about half past one. So I'd get in there, get our position in front of the crush barrier, because yeah. it was obviously didn't want. But I'd get uh, in front of the crush barrier, and I'd try and just move along enough so that where the arch came round like that, yeah, the crush barrier, I would save him a speck. Yeah. And he would come about half, half one. This... Imagine telling people that you'd have to get two and a half hours before kickoff. So my brother would come, we'd stand there. So that was the last time we'd seen each other when kickoff started because we pushed and shoved. He ended up 25 metres over there. (laughs) I was 25 metres over there. And so we'd meet each other at the bus stop on the way home. (laughs) And it was... so, But but it was that fact of, of sort of being there. And sometimes I didn't see much because I was... I was younger, like 13, sort of 14 years of age. People were a lot bigger than me. But it was the fact I was on the cop. Yeah. And on Monday morning, I told the boys in school, I was on the cop on Saturday. <laughs> and it was me, it was me brother, guys, because my brother used to give me 50p back then. Um, and he'd give me 50p a week, like pocket money. Yeah. I think he was only on £3.50 a week. But he'd give me 50p every week. So I saved 50p one week. And the other one was to go to match with him. And it's one of the great things that you remember about your brothers when you get a little bit older and the sacrifices he did, giving me that. Mind you, I think I repaid it with tickets. After <laughs> <what I was> <laughs> You've done him all right, I imagine. He, he, got a, he got a multitude. So when you're an apprentice at Liverpool, which would have been like early 70s, presumably, would it? Or mid-70s by that point. 69. 69. So what was it like doing your apprenticeship? And, and Bill Shankly's there, right? So what what is the experience in the late 60s, early 70s of being an apprentice at Liverpool like? Being an apprentice at Liverpool, you can imagine me, guys, going into Anfield every morning. And we went to Anfield every day. We got changed in the home team and the waiting dressing room. We got on a coach. We went down to Melwood. We did our training, come back on the coach. Everything happened in the main stand at Anfield. You can imagine those corridors, how busy it was every single morning. So you had the little boot room where you cleaned all the boots. That was next to the main boot room, which Shanks and Bob Paisley and Joe Fagan around. It's the famous boot room. So you can imagine cleaning the boots every day. And these were my heroes. You've just said about being on the cop. You can imagine 1969. There's Sir Roger Hunt, there's Ian St. John, there's big Ron Yeats, there's Tommy Smith, there's Ian Callaghan, and there's Bill Shankly wandering the corridors. <laughs> Doesn't get much better, boys. So, <laughs> cleaning the boots, it's like if you supported Plymouth, it was whoever your hero was. Yeah. It, it was it's special moments in your life. Yeah. I, used to put, I used to put the kit out, making sure it was a privilege to put this kit we got kit out on Monday morning, guys. We put it out for the, the players on the Monday morning. After training, if it had been raining, lashing down the mud, we got all the kit together, 
we went upstairs to the drying room where we hung the kit over these trestles to dry overnight. Tuesday morning, come in, get all the kit, same kit, put it out, train. After training, get the same kit, gather it up together, up into the drying room, hang it up. Wednesday morning, same thing. So every day throughout the week, the one set of kit, not even washed or cleaned. Oh, my word. We put it. No wonder nobody got anywhere near us on Saturday. <laughs> we were stinking. We were humming. But the kit, honestly, was just... We had these long jumpers back in the 70s, and it was great in the winter because they came out in October and they got put away about March. But they used to come over your, um, over your hands like that, so they would really keep you warm. they come right down all over your... Um, town halls and all that and it was absolutely fantastic so it was nice and warm they got washed once a winter oh, <laughs> once man. a winter oh. honestly they were that as an apprentice they were the heaviest thing when they were wet and we'd have to put them in in the drying room yeah that all where the jumpers went all where the trainer shirts trainer shorts the socks sometimes the socks if they were muddy we'd have to take them in the shower wring them out under the shower and everything, and then hang them up. You went, and when you got them out of the drying room, they were like that. They were like an N shape, <laughs> and they were rock solid, rock solid. Oh. It was honestly, it was an experience. But this was the mighty Liverpool. Yeah, because these are the best, some of the best players in the country that you're. Absolutely. How long did it take you to not be starstruck? I don't think I, I ever lost it. It was always, even when I was got in the first team and was playing for years, I was still felt like, there's Kenny Dalglish. <laughs> <laughs> there's Ray Clements. You know, it was still a privilege to, I never got away from the fact. And even now when I'm in the new stand there at Anfield, and I look down at the hallowed ground and I think, did I actually do what I did down there on that pitch? You know, you read out, your career statistics and you go, wow, did I as a skinny Kirby kid? I don't know. Because I was such a fan, a copite, it was quite extraordinary. Yeah, I bet it was. One of the people that it must have just been so extraordinary to be around was Bill Shankly, right? What was he like? Like, was he intimidating? Was he inspiring? Like, did you stand up to, like, what do you do in that situation? Was How it, do you prove to him that you're worth it? He was inspiring to me just mm. listening to his voice. And you used to see him sometimes and he would never ever go in the treatment room yeah. because he didn't like to talk to any of the injured players. He would pop his head in around the door and he'd go, morning, Bob, morning, Joe, morning, Ronnie, and walk out. And there may be three and four, Roger Hunt and Mary and St. wouldn't even speak to them. But the guy could be quite cut. Because sometimes when I when I used to walk the corridors at the age of 13, he could take, he could take the mickey. And he'd look at you like, and he'd go, Jesus Christ, Tomlinson, look at the size of the nose on you. <laughs> you must have told some lies when you were younger, Pinocchio. And I was like that. I was thinking, oh, my goodness, what do you do? What do you say? He stopped me one day, and he went, Jesus Christ, Tomlinson, you remind me of a resource. I said, why is that boss, Malin, muscly, speedy? He said, no, 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 son, you'd be great enough to finish. <laughs> He was probably the most inspiring 
story that I do tell about the great man. Mm. 1972, 73, I was making me way in the game, and I was a centre midfield player. And I played about three or four games on the run, and we were playing Arsenal at Anfield. And it was a very muddy pitch. And I think Shanks had looked at it and named the team. I was sub. And as you guys know, there was only one sub in those days. That was me. Not a problem for me, though. Game went on. Boys went out there, played the gunners. And when the lads come in, we got beat. 2-0. John Radford scored. God bless him. Little ginger-haired fella with white boots. Alan Ball scored the other goal. So when we come in the dressing room, gets myself changed and everything. As it comes out, and Shanks was my hero. My mentor was a guy called Ronnie Moran. Played for Liverpool, end of the 50s, into the 60s, became my coach. So he brought me through the B team, the A team, reserve team to the first team. So he's waiting outside the dressing room. He says, Phil, are you going to have a word with the boss? And ask him why you didn't play today. I said, Ronnie, I said, it's not a problem. I said, I'm just happy to be here. I said, Phil, <laughs> that's where the problem lies. Because if he thinks you'd accept that, he will do it to you again. I think you should go and see him on Monday morning. <sighs> so I thought, oh, my God, what do I do? So I went home and I spoke to my mum, who's a massive Liverpool fan. And she said, son, Ronnie's been good to you. You've got to go and see Mr. Shankley on Monday morning. You've got to be brave. Oh, You've got to be uh... courageous. You've got to front him up. And you've got to ask him why. So I thought, drove up Upton Avenue, along Anfield Road, into the main stand car in my Ford Escort. (laughs) No baby Bentley, lads. No baby Bentley. Parked against the wall, down the main corridor, turns right, going towards Shanks' office. He's just coming out. Good morning, son. Good morning. uh, uh, Morning, but can I have a word? Silly, son, silly. Come in, come in, come in, come in, come in. Sit down, sit down. What can I do for you? <laughs> uh, oh, 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 why didn't I play on Saturday? Jesus Christ, son. You want to know why you didn't play on Saturday? You should be in here thanking me for not playing here. That load of shite out there on Saturday. Smith, Callaghan, Lawler, they're finished. They're has-beens. They're never going to play for this football club again. But you, son. You're going to play for this football club for many years to come. You're going to captain this football club. You're going to play for your country. I wouldn't be surprised that you're captain your country. Jesus, you should be in here on your bended knees thanking me for not playing you. Well, I stood up about. <laughs> I, I backed out of his office. I put my head on the top of the door. I was 10 foot tall. I felt a million dollars. Only problem was he still picked the same team the next week, didn't he? <laughs> But that was Bill Shankly in that five-minute rant. He panned out my whole career. Yeah. And that was wow. the vision of the man, and he was inspirational. What? But he was replaced, when Shankly left, he was replaced by Bob Paisley, who who won, like, so much, but doesn't feel like, from the outside, to have nearly the kind of charisma or the leadership of Shankly. What was he like as a manager? Bob was a footballing genius. Absolutely knew the game. He was probably the brains behind Shanks. Shanks had this wonderful way about him. But Bob was the one who kept us all in place. Bob knew his players, knew his injuries, knew formations and everything. So he was very clever. So when he took over, Shanks, after we won the FA Cup in 1974 against Newcastle, just retired. So we were all shocked. And Bob took over. 
Now, I try and do Shanks, Shanks's voice, sort of legendary, the way he was and the way he spoke. Bob wasn't like that. Bob reluctantly took the job because he, he, he didn't want it, because he didn't want to talk to the media. He didn't want to give team talks because he couldn't speak the way, certainly the way Shanks did. So we did, if you want, bumble as well. I don't want to make the guy seem like a, a fool because he was an absolute genius. Yeah. You ask any of my colleagues, and he would be, he would be incredible. It'd be that fella over the. What was it? I remember we were having Mark Lawrenson join the club in 1981, and Lotto joined us, and he said uh, he was like incredible. He was thinking this is the mecca of English football. He said, "What are the team talks like at the start of the season?" And he we said. Well, what, what do you mean, team talk? He said, oh, they must be inspirational. They must be, this is Liverpool Football Club. And we went, haven't you heard? And he went, no, it must be quite a start. And we went, wait till Friday morning, start of the season. Gets in Friday morning, gets down to Melwood. We all sit around in the dressing room. There's got a, um, a massage table, which has got a football pitch on the top. It's got bottle tops on them to represent the two sides. It's never got touched. And so... Bob walks in, pulling up his tracksuit bottoms like that, walks in, taps the table, and he goes, good morning, lads. Welcome, Nat, to start a new season. And we've got, we've got Mark Lawrenson here, just signed from Brighton Albion Hove, Nat, just joining <laughs> us and plays centre-back, full-back and things. And we'll chat about set pieces and plays being watched and get up straight. So we all got up like that and we all marched out onto the training pitch. Mark Lawrence said, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> and we said, what? That was one of his better teammates. <laughs> but that's the way Bob was. He just knew his game. Yeah. It must have been hard for Bob in the shadow of Shankly because, like, Shankly as well, he didn't just disappear like Sir Alex Ferguson kind of did. He was still coming to training, wasn't he? He was still turning up at Melwood. Was that awkward? It was extremely awkward. And honestly, I can picture it now because, as I said to you, we, we'd get on a coach from... Um, so you think of pre-season, 1974, start of the 74-75 season... We've got on this coach, come down to Melwood. We get off the bus, as we always did every day, come through the door. There's about two cars in the car park, one's Shanks's. As we come round to the main pavilion where we'd go and sit in there before we started training, Shanks is like that, leaning over the veranda. Morning, boys. Morning. Morning, boys. Morning. We all pass. Morning, boss. We're still calling him boss. <laughs> and it's gone on like that for about six weeks. It was really difficult. Yeah. And then all of them, we find out, is Shanks is no longer there. Shanks is not turning up at the training ground. Apparently, allegedly, Bob had had to go to Peter Robinson and the chairman, John Smith, and say, look, I can't carry on like this. This is not right. The boys are all coming down there. They're, talk, they're calling him boss. And uh, Bob Paisley, because he demanded that we call him boss, which rightly so. So it was a really difficult position for Bob. Imagine doing that 
with Bill Shankly knocking yeah, about. God. It was really hard, but that's the way it, it happened. And it, it was a sad sort of time for it to finish yeah. that way. I've been told to sort of, and it was Shanks' decision. He yeah. made it and he wanted to retire. So, you know, you can't have that and keep, you know, it's, imagine somebody there retires who was head of, I don't know, Land Rover or something, but he's still turning up every day. Yes. He's took his retirement. It just doesn't happen. But then we didn't win, we, we didn't win anything in that first year, 1974-75. So pressure was on. Was Bob Paisley good enough? Was he not? His first signer was Phil Neal. Then we got Alan Kennedy and Terry McDermott, who who came in. Um, one of the last things Shanks did was sign Ray Kennedy, converted him from a striker to a left midfield player. Bob, uh, Bob Paisley did. So it was all quite wonderful tactical stuff yeah. that Bob actually did. So, and then the steamroller started, the European steamroller, the domestic steamroller. 75, 76, won the league, won the uh, UEFA Cup. And it all started 1977, first time, European Cup. Just a question of time, Doctor, for injuries. And the substitutions. Robert Verd looks at his watch and his whistle signals that the European Cup has come back to Britain and has come to Liverpool, who've won it in the same season as they've won the champion, championship. Scenes of utter delight, scenes reminiscent of 1967 with Celtic, 1968 with Manchester United. Liverpool have joined that club and they deserve wholeheartedly to be there. With the European Cup, which you dominated, kind of, and English teams dominated, there was a period where English teams won six in a row, maybe, something like that. How much, these days, obviously, everyone knows all about European football, blah, 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 but how much did you know what you were facing up to? Did you know about the opposition? Did you... Because presumably you can't scout them. There's not very little information. Well, we did try to do our best because when you can imagine it was the, the, the European Cup was about the winners. Yeah. So you didn't have people who come second or third or fourth yeah, yeah, yeah. in your league, which, which has happened before. Um, so you had to be sort of the winners. So there was only your one team. So we had a guy called Tom Saunders. Hmm. Who would start to go and do a lot of our reckeys because he he was he would try to get out to these places, which because we were still traveling to eastern East Germany. So we were having to fly into um West Berlin and go through Checkpoint Charlie. Oh wow. Like, you know, you think you think yeah. it's all a, all that's all a little bit of a myth. But yeah. it was you'd have to go through. They took all our passports off us, took them all away, and were in this compound. The coach to get um all the which we only had two skips with the kit in, and they would ask us to get them out, and they would check all them. They would they would have the mirrors underneath the bus, so it was Bloody it was hell. quite ex- quite extraordinary wow. times. So Tom Saunders would have to go through all this on his own if he was going to have a, a have a check on an Eastern on sort of East Germany team. Yeah. Oh wow! It's it's such a mad time. Like, and you became you won the first two in the team, then the third one you were captain. What yeah. is that? And what was it like being made? What was your first game as captain? And what did it feel like to be the captain of Liverpool? I think, do you know what? I think it was against 
Arsenal. I can't be under it, but I think it was against Arsenal, my first game as captain. Mm. So it was one of them. It was only an hour before the kickoff. And it was funny because Emlyn had fell out of form, fell out of favour, and they'd given the captaincy to Kenny Daglish, which I always thought it was in my destiny. Yeah. And that was mine by right to be a captain of Liverpool. But it wasn't a problem. I wasn't begrudging uh, Kenny. But Kenny, could people forget about that? Kenny was only captain for a couple of games. And allegedly, Kenny went to see Bob Paisley and he said, I don't want this. I don't feel... Kenny was a relatively shy guy, tough, yeah. as, tough as they come. But he said, I don't want this anymore. So playing the game against Arsenal, an hour before kickoff, Bob Paisley comes to me and he said, you're captain today, Tom against Arsenal. And I went, wow. And at that point, no mobile phones then, guys. So I, I couldn't even form the family because they'd be all on the way to the match. So I couldn't tell anybody that I was going to be captain. And as I say, my brother who I went to match with, he still went on the cop, right in the middle of the cop. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. So I'm saying to the lads in the dressing room, because... Now you see it on Sky and the two teams come out together and they all come down the tunnel together and it's all well choreographed and everything. Not back in the day. You could go out when you were ready. There was no warming up on the pitch. You went out as a team when you were ready. Or when the referee's bell went, about five minutes to three, and then you both had to come out. Sort of after one team goes out, the other want to go out. I'm thinking, Arsenal are going to get in the cop end to upset us because that was ours by right. When you came out, you headed to the cop end, you tossed up, you always defended the cop if you won the toss. This now is on my mind. I think I've got to get in the cop because R. Owen, my brother, is on the cop. He's going to see me with the armband on. I was like panicking. So there's about eight minutes to go. I'm going around the dressing room. I'm saying to all the boys, we're getting out. We need to go now. We need to get out on the on the pitch. We need to go. Come on, let's go, boys. And the lads are like that. Clem and Phil Neal, Terry Mack, Grimson. Tomo, just calm down. Just relax a bit. We know you're excited about it. You know, but just so about six minutes to go. I'm like that. Lads, come on. We've got to get out there. We've got to get out. Let's go. And they've gone off. For Christ's sake. Okay, let's go. So I'm like that. I'm like a coil spring. Let's go. Comes out the dressing room. The boys are behind me. Comes down the steps. Touches the this is Anfield sign above me head. I'm like that. My heart is pounding. As we come up the steps, out into the sunlight, I turn to the right to, well, jog towards the cop. Goes towards the cop like that. Gets over there. As it gets near the edge of the box, everybody's laughing. Could hear that all the ground laughing. I thought, what are you laughing about? Like that, because I'm looking for Owen on the cop. And it's going like that. Next thing, it turns around like that. There's Kenny Daglish, Ray Clements, Graeme Sness. They're still in the tunnel. <laughs> still in the tunnel, pissing themselves laughing at me, on me, in the middle of the pitch, looking for our Owen, waving to him like that on the cop. But it was, I, I always put it down, it was two things. One, they knew how important it was for me to be captain. I did think it was my right to be Liverpool captain. And the other one was, more importantly, we all used to love a laugh. And that yeah. was at my expense. 
So it was a great moment and a funny moment getting the captaincy. When you say yeah. you always, was it that a real feeling of squad togetherness? Are you go like, oh. are you going out on together? Are you getting drunk together? Is that all kind like? Well, too often as people would say it, because it, we we were the epitome of team spirit. Yeah, it was every kind and. When we used to get together with England, they were going, oh, God, you lads at Liverpool, like, you all seem to be out in the lash together. You all seem to... And and we were... We'd go out, and we'd go out for... You've been there, lads. you go out some days and you go, we'll just go for a couple of halves. Yeah. Halves of lager. So yeah. you go to a pub about six of you. And that is about, what, one o'clock, half one in the afternoon. You'd still be there about eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. And but those arms were getting yeah. too quick, and then so we would always be together as a group after a match. We'd get back if there had been an away game in Birmingham, we'd get back to Anfield, we'd all be in the cars down to a nightclub. It was like the wacky races <laughs> trying to who was the first to get down to. So we socialized, we had yeah. a fantastic time with the Christmas parties, became legendary. I always remembered talking to some of the, the lads, the players, and the likes of the Arsenal lads would always be down there and to Don Howe and that. And he'd be chatting and he'd say, you've been out drinking again, you lot, you've been there. And he said, what? But Liverpool do it. Liverpool do it. They all go out and get drunk. And he said, yeah, but if you see what they've won, who's a bunch of shit? <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was a very special group yeah. of players. Winding into the kind of mid eighties, how how did you cope with kind of the the tail end of your career as the body started to slow down a bit, getting left out of the team? How did you cope with all that? You had to think a lot lot more. I'd had a couple of cartilages out in my time, nineteen seventy four, nineteen seventy seven, um, which doesn't help matters. You know, at Anfield we didn't have a proper physio. We had. Bob Paisley was the physio under Shanks. Then it was Joe Fagan was the physio. Ronnie Moran was the physio. Not one of them had a, had a diploma or anything. <laughs> bucket and a sponge. I don't think they knew how to put a plaster on. But these were the guys. So you didn't have any rehab. You didn't have a. You didn't have a, any specialists to do um, physiotherapy. A coach who would just take care of you. So when you when you left and you had your treatment. You got on the coach, you went down to Melwood, you just walked around when you could, you jogged when you could, you sprinted when you could, yeah. and then they'd look at you and they'd go, are you fit? And you'd go, wow. yeah, I'm fit. And they'd go, right, you're playing on Saturday. That's it was mad, literally it? as easy as that. No rehab coaches at all. So it God. was it was very much so. I had my cartilages out, not getting the help that really you could do, the rehab that you should. It was... Um, to say I played until I was like 30, uh, 31, and I moved on from Liverpool. So, you know, maybe it could have been a, a little bit more, but the body starts to slow down, but this, the experience carries you through. I started playing centre-back with Emlyn Hughes. Emlyn was my rock. I could lean on him. He was more experienced than me. But then I think I then helped Alan Hansen, who came along after yeah. me. So it was uh, Hughes... Thompson, then it was Thompson, Hansen, then Hansen and Lawrenson. So yeah. it was like you sort yeah. of helped each other get through things. I read that on the like one of the last things that happened to you like was that 
you were dropped on the day, or you didn't make the squad for the European Cup final in 1984. Oh, this is this is the, this is this the lowest, probably the most lowest memory of my time yeah. at, at Liverpool. It was 1984 European Cup final. Um, Liverpool are playing Roma in the, in their own backyard. Yeah, there's 17 players gone to Rome, and there's about there's a couple of players who are no possible going to be subs who were injured but nobody was saying anything and we we're all in it together. So there's only going to be 16 involved. So one person's going to miss out here. So the day of the game, Joe makes his decision, Joe Fagan, and he says, Phil, you're sub. And I was the most experienced player in the squad. I could play in midfield, play at the back, and he left me out. So I thought, not a problem. I've got to be behind the teams. The experience then comes in. I've got to back the boys. So it's great. Comes going to the match as I came out of the hotel, going to get on the bus. We had three buses one for the players, one for the wives and girlfriends, and one for the press. As I came out of the hotel and I put my foot on the uh, to get on the bus going through the door, Joe Fagan went forward like that. And he went, You can't come on here. I said, What? He said, You can't come on this bus. And I said, What do you mean I can't come on the, on the bus? You winded me up. He went, No. You're going to go have to go on the bus with the wives and the girlfriends. I didn't what? even have a ticket. And I went like that. I says, oh, come on. I said, you're joking. He says, no, you can't come on here. You're going to have to go. She never explained, never said wow. anything about it. I had to trudge, and that's what I did. And some of the players are already on the bus, and they're looking at me like that. I go, what are you doing? And I had oh to go down God. there. And I had to get on the bus, and you can imagine all the wives are all talking and everything, and... My wife's like that. She said, Phil, what's the, what's happened? I couldn't even speak. I had such oh, a lump in me throat the size of a tennis ball and I was heartbroken. So I had to be ushered into with everybody. Didn't have a ticket to show. And I, I did, so I'm, I'm sitting. So if, say, there's four people of four seats, there was five of us in four seats. I had to sit oh. there. It didn't change my, the team wanting to win, shouting and screaming. Yeah. And I was absolutely devastated, boys. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I've never had that. So the next time I see the team is at the reception after the game on one of the hills in Rome, and that's when I met the players. And the players are like, "That's what happened? What went on?" I said, "He wouldn't let me on the bus." I said, "I don't know why." So when I became a reserve team manager in 1986, Joe Fagan had retired then. Yeah. After my games at Anfield. He came into my boot room after every game. He would have a scotch and there would be the opposition's manager, me, a guy called John Benison, my assistant. And we would sit there, have a drink. And after we finished, he'd say, Phil, will you give me a lift home? He only lived about 500 yards from Anfield in these terraced houses down from yeah. Joe Fagan. Yeah. And, I, and I took him. And I must have done it for, I don't know, four years, five years. Never, ever said to me, why he made that decision. Wow. I know what you're going to say. Didn't you think of asking him? I was too nervous. Even now you say it comes wow. out in you. I was too nervous to ask him, why did you do that, Joe? I was the yeah. most experienced player in that squad. And you just absolutely sort of nearly killed me. And oh. it, it wasn't, I never, ever got to sort of ask, ask him the question. Yeah. God bless him in there. And it was, but... You have to make tough decisions, as yeah. I learned with Gerard Trillier, 
I became manager in my own right, yeah. sort of as an interim when Gerard was ill. So I was picking the team. So you have to make big calls. It's it, So but initially returned to the boot room in Kenny Dalglish's backroom staff. Um, how ex- was that? Did you, had you always wanted to do that? Had you always, when you were playing for Liverpool, did you think, I want to then still be part of the club? You know, I, I, as you say with the way, when, when I left and I went to Sheffield United, I had yeah. three one-month loan periods because I didn't. And then you're thinking, well, it's not bad here. I didn't like yeah. it. So what I did, I said to Kenny, I said, can I still train at Liverpool twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays? He said, Tom, oh, not a problem. And so I said to Sheffield United, look, I don't want to move over. At that time in my life, at 31 years of age, I didn't want to move to Sheffield because that's where my home was. That's where my my family was. So they said, yeah, not a problem. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I would travel or drive over to Sheffield, train, drive back. So that was always the case. So on the Tuesdays and Thursdays, as you heard that the famous sort of five asides, five asides with the staff, was seven or eight asides. Now Kenny was involved in them. So I used to train with them. Instead of training with the reserves or the first team, yeah. I would train with them. So after the training was done, then we'd have the match. I would always be there playing against the apprentices. So I would always be there. And I'd, it was always in me. I, I, was at, I, was, I was the organiser of the side at Liverpool doing yeah. all that. So to be coaching was in my nature. So when we were playing and all that, I'd, I'd be trying to help the young kids who were playing against us. Why? So Kenny Daglish came to me one day in my second year, I think it was that. I went at the Christmas to Sheffield United and then it was the following year. And he said, look, Phil, call me in one day. And I thought, oh, shit, what have I said here? And he <laughs> called me into his office and he said, Phil, he said, I believe things aren't going well for you at Sheffield United. If you're thinking of leaving there, I want you back here as a, a coach. So I thought, is he kidding? So I went on for a few weeks and nothing had gone on. And then I went to see him and I said, are you serious about that? And he said, yeah. He said, if you're leaving there, I want you back here as a coach, not knowing what my role was going to be, but he wanted me to be reserve team manager, player manager. Oh, so wow. it was like it was like everything sort of fell into place. That lasted one year um, <laughs> as a, as a player manager because Ronnie <laughs> Moran was Ronnie Moran was moaning at me saying, "You can't be playing. You're denying a young kid the chance <laughs> of playing in the side." Which he was correct. Yeah. But I, I only ever played when we had uh, all seventeen and eighteen year olds playing. Not Jan Mulby, not Paul Walsh, not what John Walk. Not the likes of all those, because when they were playing, obviously I wouldn't play. Yeah, but, uh, that was some experience because they felt the wrath of Phil Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that period with Kenny hugely successful. Was it three league titles, two FA Cups? But there's one night that's uh, like right in the memory of every football fan, the end of the 1989 season. We've spoke to Lee Dixon and a few others about on the winning side of that night. What was it like to be on the losing side of that last-minute goal in 1989 to lose the title at Anfield? You know what? Not many people ever ask me this question because this is a losing question. Yeah. Not many over the years have said, what was it like on that night? And, of course, I'm on the 
uh, sort of coaching staff. So I'm in a dugout just in my civvies and everything. So it was you could feel the apprehension amongst the Liverpool lads of what do we do here? A draw is good enough for us. Do we attack? Do we defend? What do we do? So you're in between two stools. You were, oh, how do we handle this? And it was like that very much in the game. Played the game at our own pace, very much in control. Because I've heard Paul Merson talk about it. He was like that. Coming at half-time, Mayer says, and George Gray, George is in there and he says, you've done brilliant, lads, you've done great. He said, all we've done is chase the ball around for 45 minutes. <laughs> he said... He said, you've done exactly right. He said, we'll score one goal and then later on we'll score another goal. May said, I thought he was on some gear or something. He said he was, because <laughs> we hadn't touched the ball. Arsenal comes streaming forward now in surely what will be their last attack. A good ball by Dixon, finding Smith. But Thomas charging through the midfield. Thomas, it's up for grabs now. Thomas, right at the end. to the league season well into injury time the Liverpool players are down absolutely abject we had been overall a better team but there was something about George Graham's Arsenal which kept on going because it looked like we were winning the title the ground was still full so that emotion because like if a lot of people had gone home if it, if the Arsenal had scored earlier, say in the 75th minute, scored the second one, people had gone. But they stayed and they stayed. And it, with Arsenal winning it, the applause that rung out, when the Liverpool fans had accepted that it wasn't to be, we were just astounded. Really? At the, oh, wow. oh, yeah, it was just quite astonishing. The only time I'd seen that was when uh, Leeds had won the title. At, at Anfield and uh, Billy Bremner and Jack Charlton after they celebrated at the Anfield Road and turned and walked to the Liverpool fans at the far end and the Liverpool fans applauded them that was the only other oh, time wow. I'd seen something like that happen out of the disappointment come sort of a well yeah. done congratulations yeah. I think it showed a great sporting side what was and then the following season, like out of it seems like out of nowhere, obviously from outside of the club, the four four against Everton, and then Kenny quits. What was that like as a kind of from within the club? Oh, it was a bombshell. It was a bombshell. It was it was it was the time like Shanks had said that he was retiring, and you you just couldn't get it. Nah, that's not possible. It seems like like Shanks could have gone on for years. I think he always regretted making that decision. But after that game, because I was reserve team manager, I can remember coming in in the morning, Ronnie and Roy were in the boot room. As I've come in, I'm just coming past the boot room, going up towards where the dressing rooms were. And lo and behold, Ronnie went, I said, morning, Ron, morning. And he went, Phil, Phil, come here, come here. So I went in there, sat in the small boot room, and he said, well, what's up? And he said, uh, he says, Kenny's packed in. He's finished. <laughs> and Kenny had been obviously my teammate. And knowing Kenny loves a wind up. I said, You're taking the Mickey. He says, Phil, no. He said, yeah. And my question then, as everybody's, would be, why? And Ronnie's words to me, and I think it was correct, he said, Kenny feels as though there's like a nut tightening in his brain 
and it's going to just explode. And he says he just feels though he, he just can't carry on. Wow. And it was a real difficult one at the time. And then Ronnie was involved. Ronnie and Roy took over. And I was flipping between the reserves and the first team uh, because Ronnie had become interim manager. So then there was only left, left Roy because now you'd have a whole army of support staff. Yeah, yeah. Back then, Ronnie, Ronnie Moran was the kit man and the assistant, assistant manager <laughs> and, and the physiotherapist. It was just... And do you think Ronnie would have... Like, it feels like, because then Roy obviously went on to be manager, it feels like Ronnie Moran, who was there for all of it and was such a big part of it, he was the only one that never became manager. Let me tell you the story. Because Ronnie had been interim manager mm. while this was all getting done. So... It's uh, gone. Did that's Ronnie? Did he fancy it? No, don't fancy it. Then he had I don't know how many games, five, six, seven games in charge, doing the job, and then Ronnie decides, hmm, I can do this. I can do this. I can handle this. So he went to see Peter Robinson, and he went, Peter, you know, you offered me the job. Well, I come. I'll take it. I've done it. And he went. He said, Ronnie. He said, I wish you'd have come yesterday. He said, and told me it. He said, because we've offered the job to Graeme Suness today and he's oh, accepted wow. it. Oh, uh, wow. What a slight so moment. He was 24 hours too late. Oh, and what, oh, wow. I mean, it's all hypothetical, but what do you think he'd have been like as a manager, Ronnie? Can you tell, like... Ronnie, Ronnie was a shrewd guy. As I mm. said, Ronnie was my mentor. Mm. As I said, he, he, he'd, he'd done all the stuff, coached in the B team, coached in the A team, coached the reserve team. And then by his right, he was, he'd was he gone on to coach the first and then became assistant manager. So I think he had the knowledge. I think he had it. I think it was just that little, can I actually mm. handle this? Well, that yeah. was running. But I, I think it then dawns on you, I can, I can do this job. I think I've got yeah. the capabilities. It wasn't all that you uh, you A for A, you A for B, you A for C, you A to D, you A for Z, you A for all those sorts of things back then. You had to have your your early um, badges uh, to be able to do it, which Ronnie had. But he was the driving force behind that seventies team. Yeah, he was he was Mister Angry, but he could also be Mr. Calm when it needed and that voice of reason and I think he would have made it an ex and I no doubt he would have been a top class manager Do you think that team which then obviously you know it all went kind of wrong and part of that was based on the attempt to rebuild that team do you think that, that it was a difficult time to take over at that point I think it's now as one of the things that I was labelled at my door was that I'd said when I got sacked in 1992 mm. by Graeme is that I'd said that Graeme Suness had tried to change things too quickly. I don't know, even to this day, whether I did actually say that or anything, yeah. but he deemed it that I was I was sacked. Now, you, you like to think is that sort of Graeme coming in those players in 1990, 1991, you're going, there were some good players. There were some aging players just yeah. needed a little bit of maybe changing one or two, the way it had been done. Yeah. 
But Graham was very, very rash. He wanted changes. He wanted to do this. Certain players uh, needed to be sort of moved on. And I think it was trying to do things. It was trying to do things too quickly. And yeah. I think Graham, many years later, tried to do things too quickly at Liverpool. Now, whether I say I'm not, I'm not saying I was the genius who who sort of was the one who could see that happening. I don't know. But yeah. Graham said those exact words many years later. Yeah. yeah. It was a strange time for Liverpool, wasn't it? Because... Yeah. yeah good dominated. players. Steve McMahon, yeah. Ray Houghton, Ronnie Whelan, John Barnes, Ian Rush. There were yeah. some really some great, great players. players. Like that, yeah. selling Peter Beardsley. Did Peter Beardsley go to Everton, maybe, directly? Peter went to Everton. I remember <laughs> when Graham Sooner said, I was like, where? <laughs> Because you just go like that. You think if there was one player who could come back to home, yeah, which he did do, he scored in the Derby game, which just let Peter go to, uh, to Goodison Park. He, oh, he went, he went to Newcastle. He was brilliant for maybe two-thirds of the 90s, Peter Beardsley. It's not like he was... Listen, you, you, make, you make some decisions, you make big decisions, yeah. and maybe that was one where you go, you, you maybe, maybe his time wasn't there to be at Liverpool anymore. Maybe yeah. that's how it was seen, and maybe it's time to move on. But he certainly wasn't finished. Peter Beardsley showed no. it at showed it at Newcastle with the, that period. So you say like you get sacked at that point, and you've been Liverpool. I know you went to Sheffield United, but you've basically had Liverpool in your life for thirty years, twenty five years. You've been at that yeah. club, not at that, not at that point, but I did do finally. But yeah. that's to lead to leave. To leave Liverpool in 1992, I was I was devastated. Yeah. It'd be my life, and yeah. having to tell having to tell my sons, my two, I've got four boys, yeah. then the two older ones, they were only young. Having to tell them that the dad was no longer being able to go in because it was special, even then, to go to Anfield to be there. The sons of Phil Thompson, my wife, we were still very much because we, we'd been sort of a, a sort of an ex player. You were still very much welcome in the club. Yeah. That I was absolutely devastated. I was, I just didn't know. And I had to tell my sons, and they sobbed. Why, Dad? I didn't know why. And I couldn't tell them the reasons for it. And I, I, I just, honestly, that was, that was the biggest thing that ever happened in my life. God, yes. Yeah, so, did so, you go to games in the mid nineties? Did you just stay away from? Did that? you know, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't go for a while. I really wow. couldn't go for a while. I was just, I was absolutely, and it'd be my life. Yeah. To go to either as a fan or as a player, you know. God, I was seventeen, still an apprentice, and I was still going on the cop. You know, yeah. as I, I'd have been in, I'd become a young professional. I was still going on the. So it had been my whole life. And now I found myself, I, I just, I was devastated. Absolutely devastated. Not as much as 1984 European Cup final, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> relative. Right. And then in 1998, Gerard Houllier is the joint manager of Liverpool at this point with Roy Evans. Mm -hmm. And then how do you find out that Roy Evans is leaving? I think he resigned, didn't he? And that they ask you to yeah. be assistant to Gerard. Well, I'd, I'd chiselled out a nice life in Sky Sports uh, yeah. for myself. So I was doing Sky Sports and various things, mainly Soccer Saturday. Um, I was doing radio, Radio City for the Merseyside. I was doing newspaper articles. So life was 
Life yeah, was quite sweet good. Gig, right? So I'd, it was a League Cup match against Spurs on a Wednesday night. And I'm doing commentary for um, the game. And I'm looking down from the stand at the dugout and you've got Gerard Hulier and you've got Roy Evans sitting there, hardly looking, because I'm always looking at the bench, yeah, thinking yeah, yeah. what's going on between the two. Out of the substitute, who would it be changing at any given time? What would you do? So I'm always looking and watching. Mm. On the field, it was awful. Spurs won the game 3-1. They were a much better team. So we've gone out of the League Cup. I'm watching this match. I'm seeing our two managers sitting there so opposite each other. No passion, no commitment coming across to the players. From So, of course... My emotion is all flooding out as a commentator, as an analyst. And I'm sitting there with this guy and he said, Phil, what's your summary of it? And I said, I don't know where my football club's heading. The players on the pitch are echoing what's happening in the dugout. There's no chemistry between them. And I just went into a, a massive rant, a composed rant. Yeah. And I went off a fire and I could see the fella from Radio City going... <laughs> like that and it was just that emotion pouring out to me anyway the next day all, all those ex-players were meeting the masters were starting you know like the six aside that was happening down at Wembley well the masters so we were in training for it so we were all meeting just down Everton Valley not far from the ground there was a thing called the pits indoor uh, five aside so we were meeting there to do some training I've just get me um, kit off and my mobile goes, so I was like that. I'm like that. I said, hello. He said, oh, it's Peter Robinson, chief executive. I said, hi, Peter, you all right? He said, yeah, Phil, um, where are you? And I said, oh, I'm just um, down the road. I said, just at the pit soccer. He said, uh, could you come to a meeting? And I went, mm, I'm thinking about my rant the night before the game. Oh. <laughs> and and I, I said, oh, uh, well, yeah, yeah, what, what's the problem? And he I said, uh, I said, do you want me to come to Anfield? I went, no, 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 no. He said, Roy's just resigned and um, the press are all over Anfield. He says, can you come to the chairman's house? Do you know where the chairman's house is? And I said, well, yeah, I know where the chairman lives. He said, can you come to his house? And I said, oh, when? He said, now. And I thought, oh, my goodness. So I'm putting my tracksuit bottoms on, putting my T-shirt on, coming out. And David Johnson's went, David Johnson's just coming in. He goes, where are you going, Tom? And I went, Sky won an interview. And it, David Johnson tells me after, he said, I thought, there's the Sky camera crew just there because they were gaining people's reactions to the announcement Roy's going. And he said, I thought, why has he just said that when the camera crew are here? It was the only thing I could think of. So I drove up to his um, house, rang my brother, Owen, and I rang my wife, and she was helping out the children in our kids' school just to do reading lessons and things. She just as a helper. And I said, Ranga. She, she went, ah, and I said, Margaret, she said, I'm doing the teacher. I'm teaching the kids. And I would get out of there now. I need to talk to you. <laughs> so she came out and I said, and I, she said, what's the job? I said, I don't know. <laughs> so I didn't know whether, I didn't know whether it was the manager's job, assistant managers. It could have been reserve team coach. So when I got up there to David Moore's house, 
went in there. It was like a funeral parlor. All the directors are sitting round. And uh, I said, hello, gentlemen. How are you? And all that. I'm just a Miss Gruff in a tracksuit. Yeah. And they said, uh, I said, what, what can I do? What can I help you? And he said, well, as you know, Roy's uh, resigned as of today. He's left. Um, we would like you to be um, assistant manager to Gerard Houllier. And I went like that, the insides are turning over, assistant manager. And I was like that, oh my God, what do I, what do I say here? And I've gone, well, you know, my love for love. I said, how'd you come to this? And they said, well, we had the discussions and, you know, we said this team needs a bit of guidance. This team needs a bit of authority. This team needs a little bit of discipline. This team needs a bit of drive. And we, Tom Saunders said, gentlemen, I'm listening to you and what you've got to say. And there's only one person that you need to come back to this football club. And that is Phil Thompson. Oh. And he said, so you have to make that decision. So it's a big call because I've left in uh, sort of 1992 yeah. and now it's 1998 and they've made this big call for me to come back. And it was a wonderful six years with Gerard Tullier, God bless him. Yeah. Um, that I had us coming together. We were the odd couple guys. Yeah. Had this <laughs> what was it like a duo with him? He had this sophisticated Frenchman whose English was perfect. His, his English writing was perfect. And it was me who sort of really, I was the, the young Ronnie Moran. They yeah. abrasive, they're harsh, and, which is what why they brought me in. Yeah. And... It worked, so it was like opposites attract. Yeah, and and we we went on to form a, and I loved the guy, and I did, yeah. and I told him every time after we finished in two thousand and four. I think I told him before that that I loved him, and oh, I did wow. do, and it was we had such a great close relationship. Yeah. Is that you know he give me because if he didn't want it, because part of the question when I was in David Moore's houses. How does Gerard Houlet feel about it? And he said, yeah. he's willing to give it a go. We've said how much and what how what good that you can do him and how important it was. And he said he fully accepted it. Yeah. He's got such a unique story, Gerard Houlet, because of course he was an amateur player. He was never a professional footballer. Mm. So what it like, is, there, is there an aspect of the first team they're like, this guy never played football? Was there a bit of kind of not mistrust about him? Did they have to win the players over, do you know? This guy was supposed to be the brains behind the great French revolution of, you know, winning the Euros, winning the World Cup. Uh, Claire Fontaine, the big um, sort of coaching base, training complex that they had over there in, in France. He was the brains behind it all. Um, and I think it was, it was Amy Jacquet who was the manager in 1998 when they won the World mm. Cup. He attributed it, a lot of it to Gerard Houllier. So I think on that is that he worked himself up big in FIFA, big in UEFA, very, very tactically. Um, he was quite astute. So this was fantastic. I just think they felt that he needed that little bit of yeah. a, a local knowledge yeah. and a presence. Somebody who'd kick ass, basically. And I think... <laughs> I. I I knew me role going in there yeah. because I'd been like that with the reserve team. When I'd done the reserve team from 86 to 92, you had to, I, I felt that those first teamers coming to play in my reserves 
Oh, I give them a hard time because I thought those young lads trying to make the way in the game. If I didn't treat these the the, the big heads as we call them, the first team players who were coming to playing in the reserves, the same as them, they wouldn't look at me in the right way. It's no yeah. good slaughtering the young lads and you leave. Oh, me and Jan Bowlby, and like we'd been we'd played in the team. I slaughtered Jan. And Jan would be shrugging his shoulders and everything. I would, yeah, big, fat, lazy. <laughs> Paul Walsh, John Walk. You go through them all, Craig Johnson's. I would hammer them. So, of course, I had that in me. It yeah. probably wouldn't work now. People say, oh, you can't shout at people now. But it was a different era. And I think that Liverpool team needed that. Well, that, and it was it was the times coming out of the Spice Boys. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What, what was, was the it? atmosphere like at the club with the Spice Boys? Kind of. Is, <laughs> is that a myth, or do you think that's a fair label? Well, it was. Listen, they were a gangs of young lads, and I think when I was playing my trade, we always had like a handover type of thing. You would have the experienced lads giving the younger lads advice: "Don't do this, don't do that, but we can mm. do this, we can do that." We'd had an influx of young players all coming together at one time. Your Robbie Fowler's, your McManamans, your Jamie Redknapps, your Don Hutchinson, your Steve Harkness's. There was a whole host of them who became stars very quickly. Yeah. Who, who, who we were, and it was hard. Even Ronnie Moran's voice was not being heard. Yeah. And I think that was that was very very difficult for them to sort of accept yeah. those young lads. So I think that was where. The lunatics were running the asylum. <laughs> and it was it was bringing the narc to sort of set yeah. about them. And I did and I, and I did rattle a few cages. Yeah. And, but at least it got us on the straight and narrow. And Gerard, when we finished in 2004, he said, Phil, when you leave, if you go to the other football clubs, when you leave, you have to always think, what is your legacy? What have you left? He says, and what we left was a top-class, state-of-the-art training centre for whoever comes in. He says, we give, we brought discipline back to Liverpool Football Club. We rescued them from that. He says, and we won trophies. He yeah. says, they're the three things that we gave uh, back to this football club. Which I thought, yeah, that was a fair, fair point. Yeah. But he was a yeah. clever, astute, but he was a very heartwarming guy. And yeah, yeah, Stephen Gerrard and Jimmy Carragher, they talk the way they do. do you know what amazed me, guys, was speaking to Robbie just a couple of weeks ago because it's 20 years since 2001. Mm. And Robbie left, Robbie left Anfield on my watch when I was yeah. caretaker and Gerard. But I just got told one day, Robbie's going to Leeds. And I was like that. Oh, thank you very much, guys. I've got to, I've got to sit in front of the press <laughs> and this... Well, Robbie was one of them that wanted to play. He was full. It was about Robbie. Not that he wasn't a team player, yeah. but he was focused as most goal scorers are. Now, we've just spoken because we're going to do something, me, Robbie, Jamie, um, a, a big night to celebrate with the fans from mm. 2001. And Robbie was speaking. So we were doing a sort of a pre-thing as a taster for, for fans yeah. online. And it was a heartwarming approach that Robbie said. He said, all I thought about was me. Me. I was only worried about me, whether I was in the team, whether I was playing, and if I was scoring goals. 
he said, I always thought that was, he says, and you know, as you get older and you come into management, Robbie's in management as we speak in the Indian League, he says, you realise why they make these decisions as managers and why? Yeah. He says, now I realise some of the things that because of my injuries, I wasn't the same player. He says, but I couldn't accept that at the time. Yeah. He says, but I can now. And I said, Robbie, I was the same. Wondering why Joe Fagan wasn't picking me once he became manager. And I says, you hate them and you do all this. But when you become a coach, you realise these things. And Robbie, a heartwarming sort of emotional speech about Gerard wow. Houllier. Oh, that's so nice. I think that's the mm. thing. It's like, uh, like uh, we interviewed Jamie Carragher and I've heard like Michael Owen, like a lot of people, they talk very fondly. And it does feel like that was the time when almost the modern Liverpool, as we know it now, began to be built. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you yeah, asked me before about um, Gerard Houllier, the way he was. And, you know, he didn't really have a good CV as a player or, or as a sort of coach in the early days. Neither did Arsene Wenger. Yeah. And Arsene sort of, he was at Arsenal before Gerard come to Liverpool, but they both had the same ways. We changed things. We changed the eating habits when Gerard came uh, full-time manager. We created all the discipline when he became. There was a big, the, the training changed. Six-minute sections of the training schedule and the players. We had six-minute five-a-side at the end of training. The players were like, that. this is garbage, this is rubbish, this is hopeless. But they wanted more because it was only six minutes. So there was a method to it. Yeah. And I was like that wondering, will these things ever take off? Will these things ever work? So once he got his teeth into the coaching on his own at Liverpool, it was the rebirth of Liverpool in its own right. It was of the modern Liverpool, you're quite right. And there was obviously one of the big events happened uh, at Leeds when Houllier was fell ill at half time. And that's what which led to you being like in charge for six months or whatever. What was that night like? That must have been asto- like, astonishing. It was, right? it was astonishing. It was actually at Anfield. Oh, yeah, um, we, yeah, we were playing Leeds United. Um, didn't know anything about it. And we're, we're, on, we're on the touchline. Um, we then, the half-time was to go. So he goes into the dressing room. The normal thing is, Gerard would say, right, lads, get a swill, cool yourselves down and yeah. get ready. He would speak for about sort of seven or eight minutes, tactically what he wanted. Then I would speak, you know, this, that defensively or whatever, whatever that I seen. So that would be the, Gerard gave 90 seconds, two minutes, and then he walked straight out of the dressing room door and was gone. And I went, I said to uh, the doc, I said, go and see what's up with the boss. Let's yeah. see what's happened with him. So he was gone a while. So then I said to Joe Corrigan, the goalkeeping coach, I said, Joe, go find out what's, what's happening. Because the doc hadn't come back. So Joe went in there, he'd come back in, he went, he says he's not coming back out he had an oxygen mask on him oh, and he said he's not coming back out I, I, so I didn't say anything to the players I, yeah, come yeah. on lads let's get out there we were 1-0 down at the time so the players didn't so, know when they were going back players out. didn't have a clue players didn't yeah. it, it happened so quickly and of course half time you don't have you know what's just happened yeah, yeah, there yeah, yeah. so anyway 
got the players all out onto the pitch, went into the dressing room. Emil Heskey had come off as sub. Emil's on one treatment table, Gerard's on the other, with an oh. oxygen mask over him oh, like that. Word. And I'm looking at him thinking, oh, my God, Emil must have thought, what is happening? Yeah. This fella, you know, Emil must have been really concerned. Is, is something really bad going to happen while I'm lying here? Yeah. So I went like that. I held his hand and I says, you, first thing, you're going to get yourself better. And I says, you've been a good teacher. I'll take care of the players. Don't you worry about anything. You you just take care of yourself. So they got an ambulance in there, took him down to the hospital. So we drew 1-1 the game. Yeah. So we come, come in afterwards. It's not knowing anything then had gone on. The, um, I'd followed them down to the hospital afterwards. So did you tell the players after the game or...? I didn't. I did. We didn't know exactly. Oh, we so just you... said Gerard's not very well. It could yeah. have been anything for all we knew. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the only giveaway was the oxygen mask yeah. that we thought was was extremely serious, and he didn't look great. So that was it. The next morning, on the Sunday, we were travelling to Kiev. Yeah. Kiev was a four-hour plane journey, and we'd realised that playing our games when it was a four-hour plane journey is that we needed to go an extra day early. Right, Normally yeah, yeah. for a Tuesday game, we would go on a Monday. But we said, our results weren't great. And we thought, right, let's go the day before so that we can prepare a little bit better. So you can imagine, um, we've gone down to the hospital late into the night. It's, what are we going to be doing? Got the specialists are all there. They're starting to draw uh, diagrams of his heart and this sort of, it's like a flap of sun's come away and the blood is pushing all around the heart and it's going to suffocate the heart if we don't operate. So we were in the room with Isabella's wife, the doc, myself and the specialist. And they said, obviously we're going to have to operate and we need to do it now. So when it, when he got brought out, held his hand, you're in good hands, Gerard and everything. That then was into the night. So gone home, heard nothing next morning. We're meeting at the airport. I'm now in charge of, Liverpool Football Club. So, and normally I always had two bags of wine gums for Gerard and me on the plane. Gerard would be on the inside. The bags of wine gums would be on the middle seat and I would sit here. There was no Gerard Houllier to share the wine gums with me. So I was on my own and I'm thinking, shit, I've got to give a team talk now. His team talks were fantastic. And I thought, as much as I've done in the media and I can talk, as you can tell, (laughs) <laughs> I'm thinking, I've got to give this team talk pre sort of, um, and I'd had no, we'd had sort of no inkling where I could prepare. So yeah. I'd had to sort of do all my stuff. We'd had got a video, which we always show the players beforehand. So on the Tuesday, on the, that night when we got there, I got the doctor to meet the players. We had a meeting and he explained to the, the players that he wasn't well. We're not 100% sure what's happening as we speak, but he was in the operating theatre. But he was like 10, 11 hours in the oh, operating theatre. So, which is truly amazing. Yeah. Um, but we, I took the team. I can remember me team talk and thinking, I've got to try and do something special. So I did it, done my tactical bit, done my speech bit, done me all that. And then on the flip charts that I had on the one chart, over two pages like that, big, big words, do it for the boss. 
and we, we were the first we were the first English team to win in Kiev. Oh wow! Uh, wonderful. And then I ends up. Emil Heskey got racially abused and got slapped by one of their defenders coming off the pitch at the end. He came up to me and he said, you know, I've just been racially abused, blah, 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 and the players hit me. And I've gone, I've got to do it. I've got to stand up for my player. I've got, so I've got the press officer and myself have gone straight to the referee's room. I'd said, I've got a complaint to make and I need you to note it. I said, Emil Heskey's been racially abused. I said, and he's been hit by one of their players coming off the pitch. And I said, and you know, you're giving him it and you're thinking, this fella's be gone. This fella's going to moan at me here. And yeah. do I really want to sort of believe him? But during when I've said it, that he's been hitting everything, the linesman was getting changed and he went, excuse me, excuse me. I witnessed it. He said, I seen him hit Mr. Heskey. He said, and I've seen him coming up. Obviously, you might not have heard them. Yeah. So that was great having that back up. Yeah. And I thought, Emil now will believe that I've done the right thing for him, for our football club. The play got banned. The play got banned. No new way for it. It was probably for 45 minutes of a match. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so things don't change. It was quite an experience. Yeah. And then at the other end of those months is the, the reintroduction of Gerard Houllier as manager. Was that difficult to manage? It was. We'd gone like six months and it was... But if you, you think a few months month, down the line... You? Yeah, I got two managers of the month. Two managers of the month. Um, yeah. What we tried to do, the doctor and myself, after about three months, something like that, he was convalescing, we tried to just drip feed him information. Because I, I went to see him nearly every day down at his house. Mm. Uh, it's flat down in yeah. um, Sefton Park. And I would give him information. First of all, I was going to the hospital, back and forth to the hospital, and then going to his... And he would say, what are you going to do? And it went, you forget about everything. Don't yeah. even think about training. Don't even think about the team. Don't even think. I said, because I'm not listening. If you start speaking to me, I'm off. So I was quite firm with him on that. So, But after three or four months, it was... We need to drip feed him information. Yeah. First of all, it was about training, what we did in training, how we did, and and that. And then it was it was a little bit more about the match and what went on. And he'd be listening on the radio to some of our games that would be happening, and yeah. and he'd go like that. He'd, I remember taking Michael Owen off at Blackburn, and it was about fifteen minutes ago. We're winning three one, and I took Michael off. Michael wasn't happy. There's a big picture of him in the screen like that. On the, and like he's coming off and he's going. So I left it that day, but I called him into the office. And uh, I said, Michael, I said, you, you do. And he said, Tom, what do you want me to be? Do you want me to be? And I said, no, I don't expect you to be. So, but if you've got a problem with it, I said, you need to come and speak to me and say, Phil, why did you do it? I said, because I'd explain it. I said, but you know quite well why I did it. You've had all these injuries with the hamstrings. It's the last 15 minutes. We've got these games, European games coming up. And I said, I needed you to be in peak. I said, and when it gets late in the games, that's when you're going to pull something. So I did it, not just for the team, but for you. And he went, but Tom, and I says, Michael, I can understand it. If you need to do it, don't do it in full of the camera. I said, and everybody looking out. I said, imagine the sub who's coming on. I said, for you, and he's thinking, oh my God, what's... I said, anyway, so when I went down to Gerard's house, he went, 
I knew, and I'm thinking, Phil, you need to make a you need to make another substitution. And when you made it, I knew who it was going to be. It would be Michael. He said, you did fantastic, the timing of your sons. So all that transpired. So we gradually gave him some. So then it came to the big reveal. So he'd said to me, then the Champions League was in two group stages. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was weird. Um, So we'd gone from the first group stage to the second group stage. And the last game was Roma at Anfield. And we needed to beat Roma 2-0 to go through to the, um, the quarterfinal or the semifinal. I think it was the semifinal against Leverkusen. So it's, he says, Phil, if I am needed for the Roma game, he said, I will make my comeback if I'm needed. But well, we needed him, obviously, 2-0 uh, that we need to win it. So he's gone like that. So we planned it all, me, Gerard, and the uh, press officer, because we knew it was going to be a bum fight if he's making his big reveal at Anfield that night. So we've gone down there. We've been there with all the players, went to the hotel. And then we get to uh, about our five quarter six, doing the team talk. Gerard's turned up at the hotel because he's going to give the team talk. The players have not got a clue. The staff have not got a clue. He's there. And it's the most wonderful, quite emotional. The players are coming in. What's the boss doing here? He's already said his goodbyes at the training grounds. What's he? And then they're all there. They all go out, get on the bus. They're all looking like that. Is he coming with us? Is he coming with us? Gets on the bus. He sits on, on the, at the front there. I sit on the front in the other seat. Off we go to Anfield. As we get to Anfield... All the fans, Houllier's ah, back, Houllier's back. He gets off the bus right in front of the uh, the camera crews, the Sky camera crews, and it's Houllier's back. So, of course, it's reverberating around. just happens that they've got a big mosaic on the cop that night, big GH, to help them as long as convalescent. But I'd built the game up that it was this team, Senetienne, which was back in 1977. We need the crowd. We need everybody to be up there. We need the emotion, the drive of the fans for this game. So, of course, it's massive. This this game is absolutely huge. So, we get there. He goes down the tunnel. We're in the dressing room. Players have gone out, done the warm-up. They come back in. Then he comes out. The players have gone out for the match. He comes down the steps, touches the distance Anfield side. Gerard does it. As he comes out, Turns towards the dugout. Who's the manager of Roma? Gerard's old good friend, Fabio Capello. As Fabio and Gerard, Fabio stands up and just holds him like that. And he goes, I'm sure I see Fabio Capello mutter those words, you bastard. (laughs) 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 Because he knew Julio being back on that game would change everything. So, and it was to be, oh, and it wow. was a wonderful account. There must have been a hundred photographers getting that first shot of his oh, return. Wow. But guys, that's where I think we just, the doctor and myself just lost it. Gerard came back full time then. And after this massive heart operation that he'd had, where he died on the operating table, six months, you don't come back after six yeah. months. You don't go back to work in an office at six months. 
And I think what we should have done is went back to his his apartment and then maybe come back when we actually needed him for yeah. certain games. But he came back and I think that was too soon right. uh, for him. And, and it is, it's... Uh, it was quite an emotional night. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing to see you talk about him in such a kind of... You've clearly got so, had such an amazing relationship and it's such a... Mm. For two people that are put together to form that bond is just kind of so rare, I think. Well, that's why I always felt that this was just... It, was, it wasn't an uncanny relationship because yeah. we were like that. Because we had... We could have some laughs. We did. We had some serious, you know, because... We had to sort of try and build a team. The first transfer in, in the summer, we brought seven players in. The second one, it was six. And it was pretty needed to be done. Yeah. You know, and we made some really good signings who, you know, we made some, some bad ones as well, by the way, <laughs> which, which ends up costing you, costing you your job. Um, you know, because we signed, the last three signings were really El Hadjouf, Salif Dial, yeah. and Bruno Sheru, which didn't really work. Yeah, and it cost us like twenty million, which sounds little these days. But ten million on Juve, five million on Diaw, and uh, five million on Sheru, and none of them worked. But we did sign some good ones: Sammy yeah, Hupia, Didier Man, John Arnarisa. Yeah. It was uh, you know because when you think, I think there was about nine of our players who we left, who we lost our jobs because the team wasn't good enough is nine of them go and win the Champions League in 2005 yeah. Yeah. you know Incredible. eight or nine yeah it was an amazing amazing time it's an amazing career Chris always like you like to end with the same question don't you Chris yeah, yeah Phil I mean what an honour to, to talk to you so many people who achieved so much your impact at Liverpool is undeniable what a fantastic look over your career from being on the cop right through to winning mm. every all the pots all the pans all the medals <laughs> but if I was to give you the option of going back to the 1st of January 1970 and doing it all again, would you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. I, I often think to go there as an apprentice, reserve team player, captain, reserve team manager, trophies, reserve team manager, then television, and then sort of to come back and be assistant manager and then manager for six months. I, I found that mind-boggling. Yeah. So I, when I was managing Liverpool, I was doing what Bill Shankly did in 1969. I, I, I just, it, so it was, it was an astonishing career. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Phil, it's been an absolute honour. So nice to speak to someone who's just so kind of passionate <laughs> and happy with what they've achieved. Do you achieved. know what I mean? That's uh, lovely, lads. It's oh. nice. It's, uh, some different questions, wasn't there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ring my brothers and tell them I got asked about Peggy off. Exit. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Phil. Thanks, Thanks mate. Thanks, lads. Thank you so much, Phil. It's great. Phil Thompson, Skull. What a what a great guy. I mean, we I could just sit there all day long listening to him. It's one of those. Uh, it's, one of those interviews where you're like, God, I wish we were in a pub. <laughs> I've got so I many questions like... I didn't get to ask as well. Didn't even get to ask whether Gary McAllister used to go on about Yuri Geller. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know we wouldn't normally do this, but like, I think we should straight away 
get in touch with Phil Thompson tomorrow and say, could you come back on for one? Well, because we just want to ask you more questions and you seem to love being asked questions that you haven't been asked before. If that's what you're looking for, we've yeah. got fucking tons <laughs> of them, mate. <laughs> Didn't even ask you who your sponsors were. <laughs> um, what a guy. So passionate, so positive, so inspiring. Joe, there's one thing I've learned of speaking to football. There's a certain type of footballer who just have such a positive outlook and just things happen, like they attract things. He's one of those men I really feel that fortune has attracted him because he's so positive and just... Genuinely, I felt moved by the Gerard Houllier talk chat. Just that, that kind of, like... I mean, it's the original Odd Couple, isn't it? It's the two cops in a movie that led the opposites or whatever. It's so... And just the fact that when they got sacked, he told Gerard Houllier that he loved him. It's just like, wow. Thinking about it, his story is better than Roy of the Rovers. He's Roy of the Rovers if it carries on and Roy, Roy of the Rovers then becomes the, 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 boot, yeah. the boot room yeah. reserve team manager. Roy of the Rovers coming and filling in as manager, winning. We didn't even talk about the fact he won manager of the month in that six-month yeah. spell in charge. Oh, man. man. And that medal collection is surely the most highly decorated footballer we've had on. Surely. He's got uh, to be up there. Up there with Gary Neville. I'd say more yeah. than Gary Neville, probably. Well, there we go. Yeah. Thank you to Phil Thompson. That was genuinely an utter joy. Now, as always, we end with a quick game of starting 11. Michael, would you like to lead off? Yeah. So, uh, in honor of uh, one of our favorite people on this podcast, Peter Shilton, uh, <laughs> I have picked the infamous game where he saved Andreas Bremer's penalty, England versus West Germany, oh, from the 12th of June, That will be a quick game of starting 11. So, and we're going to make it sudden death because this okay. is a very long episode anyway. So England-Germany, 1985, uh, managed by Bobby Robson and Franz Beckenbauer, respectively. West Germany, I should say. Chris, would you like to go first? Well, I've actually been researching this game this morning. So oh, I've, got no. a, I've got a leg up. But how oh, much? No. I, how much can I remember? Uh, well, Peter Shilton, Andrew Spramer, both correct. Uh, I think Brian Robson scored in the game. He did indeed. Ray Wilkins. He, he was mentioned in the anecdotes, but it was for a different game. He was mentioned, but unfortunately, oh. he did not play. Oh, Chris. that is the quickest game of starting eleven. <laughs> Chris, do you want to showboat? Uh, yeah, I think um, have we said did we say Gary Lineker? No, uh, Gary. we haven't. Gary, Gary Lineker. Lineker. Okay, so Chris wins. Uh, England won that game three 0 The other the other goal scorer scored two uh, goals. Kerry Dixon. Kerry Dixon. Two yeah. for Kerry Dixon. We won that game three 0 Yeah. Yeah. And what is the City tournament like mid? I, I, I guess think it's a warm up for the World Cup. The warm up for the World yeah, Cup, yeah, right? Do you want to yeah. run us through the teams, Michael? Yeah. So England team was Shilton, Terry Butcher, Kenny Sampson, Gary Stevens, Mark Wright, Glenn Hoddle, Peter Reed, Brian Robson, Chris Woodall, Kerry Dixon, and Gary Lineker. That's, that's, a, that's a great, a great team. team. That's a hell it's of a really side. good team. Yeah. Uh, and substitutes were John Barnes and Paul Bracewell. Uh, <clears throat> West Germany. John Barnes as well is a great sub. West Germany, uh, Harold Schumacher in goal, and then uh, Klaus Argenthaler, Thomas Berthold, Andreas Bremer, Matthias Hergott, Dietmar Jacobs, Pierre Litbarski, Felix Magath, Lothar Matthias, Frank Mill, and Uwe Vran. Not getting, well, two of those, yeah, maybe. Yeah, three or four, yeah. yeah. Three or four is a lie, actually. Two. <laughs> two. <laughs> uh, I think if I asked you to name four now, having just named them, I don't think you've got four. 
I'm going to say it. That team shows that for all the love for Bobby Robson, his England team did underachieve greatly in that yeah. mid to late 80s period. You have yeah. to say he's he had some great lucky to have disposal. the job. Yeah, Italian INT. You, you sort of yeah. look at that and go, oh, okay, I kind of understand the press backlash. Yeah. Well, let's end on that very sad note. Um, <laughs> Chris, would you like to pick a song? Can I just see what was, what was number one on the 12th of June, 1985? It was 19 by Paul Hardcastle. Yes, bloody please. Oh, yes, please. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with Caroline Barker. It is one of our life-affirming lower league episodes, isn't it? It's great we to get a lower a series league episode. Now. I love yeah. it. It always makes me feel really guilty about supporting Manchester United these episodes. And <laughs> this, this one does even more so. Do join us for that. I'll be out on Friday for Patreon listeners, on Monday for everyone else. Until then, Robbie Slater. See you later. In 1965, Vietnam seemed like just another foreign war. But it wasn't. It was different in many ways. And so were those who did the fighting. In World War II, the average age of the combat soldier was 26. In Vietnam, he was 19. In, 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 in Vietnam, he was 19. In Vietnam, he was 19. In Vietnam, he was 19. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.